Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. I'm back. Hello and welcome to you all. I realize I sound very, very weird compared to normally. I'm not doing like a weird auto-tune thing. I am, uh, I, I don't even know what I have. I was in London last week for the ARC Forum. And then over the weekend, I was in Calgary for the United Conservative Party AGM. And then I just woke up Monday with no voice whatsoever. And I was like, all right, well, maybe at a certain point, I'll do something. So now I sound like a weird, like croaky Disney character, uh, whatever. Actually, maybe I sound better than I normally do. But this is the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It's good to have you aboard the program today. It's going to be a bit of a shorter show and a kind of a compilation of some of the things we've been dealing with over the last couple of weeks, uh, just because I am still a little bit under the weather, but uh, we'll hopefully be back to full strength irreverence in the days to come. But uh, one thing I, I want to talk about is this uh, really, really fantastic admission, this uh, saying the quiet part out loud that Bernie Farber did. Now, Bernie Farber, you may or may not know, he used to be a, a big guy in the Jewish community in Canada, head of the Canadian Jewish Congress, and he went on to found the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Now, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network is one of the groups that likes to see a big, evil, scary right-winger under every rock, hiding behind every tree, in the bushes. You look outside, it's, oh, there's a Nazi, there's a Nazi, there's a Nazi. Uh, and in a lot of ways, people have wondered if this was just a weaponized task force meant to attack the right. A few weeks back, Karima Saad and Elisa Hadigan, uh, two people that are very much on the left, published a very lengthy takedown of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network in which they uh, pointed to a whole host of issues with this organization, which I thought, generally speaking, were somewhat well-founded. But a lot of people have wondered why they were so silent when we had one of the most visible manifestations of hate we could ever expect to see come to us on October 7th. I'm talking, of course, about the Hamas attacks on Israel. They killed over 1,400 Israelis. More than 200 people are being held captive in Israel. And the Canadian Anti-Hate Network had very little, in fact, nothing to say for a couple of weeks. They finally started to talk about it, but they tried to both sides it and say, well, you know, we see anti-Semitism as a problem, but we also see Islamophobia. And then they went for what they view as the real culprit, uh, the far right. This is a post from November 1st. Canada's far right is using Israel-Hamas war to spread anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. So they're not concerned about Hamas. They're not concerned about all the left-wing protesters that are chanting gas the Jews. They're concerned about how they view the far right as being the real manipulator here, using anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Now, Bertie Farber, who in his personal capacity is critical of anti-Semites and anti-Semitism, uh, was asked on Twitter by Ariella Kimmel, who's a, a very prominent Jewish activist and advocate, why CAHN was so silent on this on Twitter. This is what he said in response. Ariella, anti-hate.ca focuses on the extreme right. That is what it does. I wish we had the resources to do more. We just don't. 
Ooh, there is a lot to unpack in those couple of sentences. We only focus on the extreme right. So for starters, that suggests that they're not actually interested in hate. They view the right as being hateful. They're interested in being anti-right, not anti-hate. And by the way, I'm not even sure that's an accurate reflection of their mandate. I looked on the antihate.ca website because they blocked me on Twitter. And on their website, it says the Canadian Anti-Hate Network counters, monitors, and exposes hate promoting movements, groups, and individuals in Canada using every reasonable legal and ethical tool at our disposal. It says nothing about conservatism, says nothing about the right. It says they look for all hate in society. But the other implication of this is that all of this anti-Semitism that uh, CAHN is not talking about must then be coming from the left, right? Ooh, interesting. Yeah, you're saying the quiet part out loud there, Bernie. I thank you for your honesty and your candor. I asked him and CAHN to clarify, and uh, needless to say, they did not get back to me. But this is, I think, quite a tremendous, tremendous display of honesty, a rare bit of honesty, that they're only interested in covering hate when they can pin it on the right. This is why uh, we see that researcher, Barbara Perry, continue to pass off that group of, like, apparently 300 uh, hate groups in Canada that are right-wing, but she won't publish the list of them. My colleague Cosman Georgia has been trying to get a hold of this list for years now and has not been able to. This is exactly what's happening though. We have this industry and I say industry because this is well-funded and this group receives government money. This industry that is trying to make it out to be that one side, one political side is responsible for all the hate and all the problems. And that is not, of course, their side. They want to just say that the right is hateful and everyone else is, I guess, virtuous and heroic, if you uh, put it to that context. Uh, one of the things we have seen come about yesterday is a bit of an unhinged reaction to Danielle Smith announcing, well, not announcing, but Danielle Smith agreeing to participate in this event coming up in January with Tucker Carlson. Now, uh, Tucker Carlson is the former Fox News host. Now he's uh, doing his show on X, where he's getting just like millions and millions and millions and millions of views. Uh, he's going to be in Calgary in January, and part of his event is going to be a conversation with Danielle Smith. Now, this is, I think, quite interesting. The premier's office has said, look, she'll sit down with a number of people. Being interviewed by someone does not mean you agree with them. You're going to sit down with CBC, with Toronto Star. You don't agree with them. Why would anyone assume that she agrees with everything Tucker said? That's a fair enough question, but it's amazing how quick the NDP just jumps into making this like a huge crisis. Shannon Phillips, who is an MLA in Alberta for the NDP, had tweeted out about this. Tucker Carlson is a pro-Putin white nationalist. So naturally, Danielle Smith to, uh, is scheduled to help him promote his event in Calgary in January. That was a, a particularly fun one from Shannon Phillips. Uh, we have another one, David Shepard, who says, Shannon's right. Carlson's been a loud promoter of the great replacement theory and other white nationalist ideas. Not someone the premier of a, of a diverse province should be giving airtime, uh, particularly at... Uh, not oh sorry they, he messed up the grammar so then i messed it up trying to fix his grammar not some of the premier of a diverse province should be giving time particularly at a time of rising anti-semitism and islamophobia and then rachel notley the ndp leader and former premier of alberta had this to say <laughs> tucker carlson um listen uh that character uh has um attacked the ukraine he has uh, diminished 
women in, a, in an offensive way. He has endorsed uh, the, the uh, uh, attempted uh, uprising uh, in the U.S. around uh, the, the presidential elections. Uh, he is not a credible figure. The fact that our premier uh, uh, believes it's appropriate to normalize the things this person would say by appearing on a stage with him, it demonstrates a profound lack of judgment on her part. Furthermore, uh, it damages Alberta's reputation on an international level at a time when we are trying to present ourselves internationally as a safe destination for investment dollars. So I would call on the Premier to immediately cancel that planned appearance uh, because Albertans deserve better from their leadership. They deserve responsibility. Uh, they deserve a measured form of leadership. And uh, appearing with that uh, character on stage uh, is not that. I like that she keeps calling him a character. It's like he's Voldemort now. You can't actually say his name because doing so is like to succumb to the evil. So uh, instead, instead of he who must not be named, it's that character. So that, that should actually be the name of the title. You know, Tucker Carlson Live featuring that character, Tucker Carlson. So uh, that's the NDP's approach. The mainstream media, I suspect, will be having a bit of a field day with this as well in the coming days. But uh, whatever you think of Tucker Carlson, I think it's interesting that uh, people only expect the left to, or people only expect the right to disown people in their group and to do this guilt by association thing. The left never has to do it. The left is never forced to apologize for its so-called radicals. The left is never forced to uh, contend with any of this. It is purely the right that has to do this because the left has kind of made it seem like anyone outside of that bubble that they sort of decide is the bounds of civil society is fringe, is marginal, is extreme. And they're okay actually cutting out large swaths of the population when they do this. Now, a lot of the unhinged anger about Tucker Carlson, by the way, is entirely about a joke, a joke he made that just like fired up people in Canada, especially on the left for bizarre reasons. This was the comment he made on one of his old shows at Fox News. What struck you about that? I thought you were going to ask me whether Trudeau is Castro's son. or if you... <laughs> very much obviously is, and I'm completely in favor of a pig's operation to liberate that country. I mean, why should we stand back and let our biggest trading partner, the country with which we share the longest border, and actually, I could just say a great country. I love Canada. I've always loved Canada because of its natural beauty. Why should we let it become Cuba? Like, why, why don't we liberate it? We're spending all this money to liberate Ukraine from the Russians. Why are we not sending an armed force north to liberate Canada from Trudeau? And I mean it. I realize he says I mean it there, but if you've watched Tucker at all, you'll know that this is just his sense of humor. Uh, he does this. He has running gags. There's a reason that whenever he mentions Ottawa on his show, he says Ottawa because it just triggers people. It's just a fun thing to do. Now, I don't know Tucker very well. I, I was actually one time when I was in Davos, I was supposed to be on his show and it was like, I was so excited and it was going to be at like two in the morning, I think in uh, Zurich, but, or in uh, Davos, but I was getting ready for it. And then they ended up like bumping me at the last minute for something else. So I, I got to go back. Yeah. Sean says he remembers. Yeah. Cause Sean was going to have to uh, uh, come with me, I think for that. But uh, nevertheless, one of the things that I, I found so hilarious is that the left never has a sense of humor. And they didn't about that. Most of the craziness about Donald Trump was not about things he said seriously. It was people that refused to accept when he was making a joke. Because that, why else would the NDP get up in the House of Commons to do this unless they had a sense of humor?
Speaker, after consultation with the parties in the House, if you seek it, I believe you will find unanimous consent for the following motion. That given the, the rise of far-right and associated violent extremism led to the attempted insurrection in the United States, the House condemns recent comments made by Fox News personality Tucker Carlson in which he suggests U.S. armed forces liberate Canada from the current Prime Minister. All those opposed to the honourable member moving the motion will please say nay. Nay, I'm afraid we don't have uh, unanimous consent. So perhaps Tucker Carlson is just going to come in, do his talk with Danielle Smith and leave. Perhaps this is step one of a multi-pronged uh, force to liberate Canada from Justin Trudeau. I don't know, and I don't really care. Uh, whether you are a fan of Tucker or not, I don't think we should be saying that politicians are only allowed to speak to certain approved individuals when it's only the left that gets to set those terms. That's the whole point, because I know that the same people will take aim at Danielle Smith if she sits down for an interview with me, if she sits down for an interview with Rebel News. And what happens then is the left gets to protect its little oligopoly on discourse. So I think just from a media freedom perspective, a lot of this is very dangerous. But there's also an additional aspect here, which is a bit bigger picture, so bear with me, which is that the media is not really concerned about popularity. They, they want only a certain type of fan. I think we saw during the COVID era that uh, a lot of the times the majority feels like it's in the minority. And that's because people that have very widely held mainstream beliefs like, oh, I don't know, support for parental rights are made to feel like they are marginal or fringe. And there was a, a bit of an aside to this that I, I wanted to get to last week and didn't get a chance. But Australia a couple of weeks ago had a referendum on something called the Indigenous Voice or The Voice, which is not just the uh, musical competition show, but it was an initiative that would have put constitutional reform in Australia to give more weight to indigenous voices in public policy, basically. And a lot of people said it would have been an indigenous veto on public policy. And they had this referendum. Everyone assumed the thing was gonna pass in a landslide. Not only did it not, but it wasn't even close. The no side trounced the yes side. I spoke about this at the ARC Forum in London with Australian Senator Alex Antic. Take a look. So for people that didn't follow the news closely outside of Australia, what was this referendum about? Oh, this is the voice referendum. So this went to a vote on 14th of October. Uh, and in Australian terms, uh, what, it was, what it was pitched as was a, a modest change to our constitution to give Aboriginal people um, special representation. But what it was in reality was a huge, significant change, a whole new chapter in our constitution uh, which was designed really, I think, to create a bigger government bureaucracy, uh, bigger government, more spending, and really had no detail around it. There was no intricacies in terms of what it was supposed to do. But what we knew was it wasn't going to actually help. It wasn't actually do anything to, to help disadvantaged Aboriginal people. So pretty, pretty encouraging that it, it went down, I have to say. We had about a 61% no vote across the country, and in my home state, about a 64% no vote. So that yeah, was great. It's, it was our Brexit moment. 
One of the things that was so fascinating, though, is how much I think a lot of the elites misjudged what those results were going to be. I mean, I, I wasn't following the polling with any detail, but people I know that were on your side of that were, were in a lot of ways either completely pessimistic or, or very narrowly optimistic. So how do people get that so wrong? Look, it's the, it's the great question. I mean, it's the same reason Brexit was mispolled and the same reason people missed the Trump election, really, in essence. I, I think part of the problem is the left... Um, they love talking to themselves. They love their own echo chamber. You know, these were people who started off with, I, I think, a, a position and then talked to themselves about it. And no one ever reached out and tried to talk to the guy on the street who really had no time for what was being proposed. Because really, ultimately, what we were talking about was dividing Australians by race. Uh, and that was basically the bottom line. It would have set up a, a, a system, we don't know what it looked like, which would have given Aboriginal people... Um, a different category of representation, which you could only get by virtue of the fact that you were Aboriginal. So that, that's racial division. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I think they thought they could probably hoodwink people into, uh, into you know, the sort of the, 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 the emotional side of it, which, was, uh, which just wasn't the case. Aussies were, I'm pleased to report, too smart. In Canada, we see under the guise of, of truth and reconciliation, a lot of proposals that, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, things seem benign, like a land acknowledgement, but, but oftentimes are accompanied by a very negative underlying premise, which is that, you know, we have to feel guilty about living in a country. And is that dynamic the same in Australia as well? Exactly the same. And in fact, you know, we've been saying, I've been saying for a long time, people are going to be stop feeling ashamed of their, of their culture and their history. We have to in Australia. I mean, my side of the coin is not, only British heritage. I've got one half of my family that are and you know I think the British created so much good in Australia and you know colonialism has become a pejorative term. Um, of course there were some things that weren't that weren't 100% uh, you know 100% good about it of course but by the overwhelming majority of things we've seen through that in you know, Western culture have been excellent and so you know look, I think we do we see our welcome to country we call them ceremonies and um, you know, it really, when you boil it down, it's, it's, it's division. You know, we, we're all Australians and, and we should be. So, you know, why keep dividing? Uh, just on a, another topic entirely, I, I know the last few years, a lot of people outside of Australia were looking at your country and saying, what the heck is going on there uh, during the COVID era? And I, I think it's probably related to the fact there seems to be a very large Australian contingent here today. Uh, so are, are Aussies pushing back? Yeah, look, I, I think so. I think in a, in a certain way, and we hope that the the no campaign and the and, and the, the the victory in the voice will will give conservatives more uh, encouragement that people out there want this message. You know, that people are sick of being told that they've got a, a lot to be ashamed of, that, that that we're a racist country, that Australia is systemically racist. It's 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 all just complete rubbish. Uh, and look, I think there is that. There are a lot of Aussies here, a lot of really good Aussies too, and um, we are seeing a bit of a shift. The problem we've got. Uh, is getting that message out there that you're not alone. Uh, media takes a very different uh, view on it. So it's good to see people like yourself here, you know, flying the flag and others. We've seen, you know, the Aussie Wire and we've got RV Many from Rebel News and people that are, you know, trying to tell a, a different uh, story, which is great. That was Australian Senator Alex Antic. I mean, I, I don't like care what happens in Australia beyond just a, you know, a distant curiosity. I've never been there, although I'd like to go. The Aussies were very fun at the ARC Forum. But man, I want Alex Antic to be the Prime Minister of Australia. That would be fantastic. Uh, he is the guy who's like sticking it to the woke left there and made a point which I think is, I mean, the Australia Indigenous issue is similar. It's different in a lot of ways, but similar in a lot of ways in the overarching ways to what happens in Canada. And he's saying, 
saying point blank there, look, we should not have to be ashamed of our culture and our identity. And I think tell that to a country like Canada, which flew the flag at half mast for what was it? Five, six months, I think, by when all was said and done back in 2021. So I thought Senator Alex Antic was fantastic in his comments, very much applicable to a Canadian audience. That was one of my interviews from the ARC Forum, which if you missed my shows last week, I was a lot less sick then. So I would go back and like remember the glory days. I might actually do that myself uh, to put myself to sleep later on, uh, where I was uh, broadcasting live from London through the week, the uh, United Kingdom, London, not uh, London, Kentucky or London, Ontario. And uh, we spoke to some of the people there about these big ideas of, of liberty, of individualism, of responsibility, these ideas that have galvanized this group of, of movers and thinkers from around the world to come together with a bit of a different story than the World Economic Forum likes to come together. And I, I said on the show last week when I was kind of wrapping it all up, that one of the big things here, one of the big commonalities that I saw was a resistance to wokeness. So I, I chatted with a guy who we had on the show a few weeks ago, Professor Eric Kaufman, a Canadian-born professor in the UK at the University of Buckingham, who is literally teaching the course on wokeness about where things went so wrong. So you have a, a unique advantage being a Canadian now uh, working in, and teaching in the United Kingdom. What would you say are the biggest differences between the two or when it comes to just the general landscape of free speech, academic freedom, wokeness? Well, there's just more resistance in Britain against these things. So you have, for example, the Free Speech Union, which is going to back you up if you are trying, if you're canceled in a university. So that's one thing we've got uh, government because of the Tory government. We've now got some uh, legislation, which I've kind of helped on. Uh, called the um, Academic Higher Education Free Speech Bill, which means that if universities try and censor you, then they will be fined. Uh, you can also take them to court. Um, so you have a number of different things, that, instruments at your disposal. Uh, you've also got the media here, which is more balanced than in Canada, particularly on the print side, and they will call out episodes of cancel culture and put pressure on universities that engage in this. So, And that's all of those things are different. My sense in Canada is that the dissidents, they are to some degree organized into self-help groups, you know, maybe around Heterodox Academy uh, branches. But other than that, they've got no backing politically or, or in the media, really, other than you guys, of course, are the only bright lights. But um, there's no real mainstream media backing. And so it's very hard to push back against this culture in these institutions. I think the, the institutional aspect is so key. I mean, obviously the UK has media bias issues like everywhere else, but there seems to be, I, I'd say, a larger volume of media outlets and also a greater scrappiness. And I don't know if it just comes from the tabloid tradition or, or something else, but, but when you talk about laying that groundwork for uh, these challenges and for these fights, is the issue that the UK is just further ahead than Canada or has there been something else that speaks to that difference? Well, there's a couple of things. One is, I think, the UK has a long tradition of having a conservative print media, uh, Telegraph, and, and even the Times and the tabloids. That doesn't exist in Canada. I think they're much more willing to go in the offensive against uh, high-sounding phrases around political correctness that in Canada, there's a lot of deference to that, and that gives cover for the institutions to go all in on this stuff. Uh, and, and be able to get away with it. Um, and I just don't think institutions in Britain that completely go all in on, on woke, uh, that cancel people, can get away with They will pay a cost in PR terms. 
and my sense is that's not happening in Canada. I also think probably within the culture in Canada, there is still, because of the post-1960s, what happened to Canada, the end of the British identity, the rise of a kind of newly invented notion of Canada as a left-wing United States, the Multiculturalism Act, you had the soil prepared for political correctness, a, a more of a monoculture in a way that, that here it was always a little bit more fractured. And so I don't think political correctness could really become the ethos of the country quite as strongly as in Canada. Uh, we've actually spoken, you and I, on, on my own show, but your, your course on wokeness, and now you're a couple weeks in. How's that been going? Well, going well. I mean, it doesn't launch till January, as I mentioned before. It's open. It's an open online course to anybody. Um, yeah, we're advertising it. We're now starting to film, and once we've got once we filmed episodes, we're then going to circulate clips so that people get a sense of what what they can expect. Uh, but yeah, I think this is ripe for an analytical approach that just says we're going to put this ideology, and it is an ideology, and woke is the correct term for it. We're going to put it on the table, dissect it like it like we would fascism like we would liberalism or any other ideology uh, and then we're going to ask questions about it so that's really the aim of this course because the way this is portrayed in institutions is that this is very much just if you're a good person these are the values everyone believes in and what we're saying is well no this is one of a bunch of ideologies and we're going to look at it like we would one of any other ideologies and what are you hoping to get out of the arc forum this week well, I, I don't, I, I mean, it's, it's such an eclectic mix. I'm partly, you know, what ARC is, as it's been explained to me, is essentially an alternative to Davos. So it's an alternative vision. Now, there obviously are some aspects that, that overlap with Davos. Davos is obviously corporate. It obviously likes capitalism. I mean, the difference here, I think, is there's a more questioning approach on speech issues, on the sort of, again, a lot of what I would call the woke agenda. So equity, this idea that, outcomes have to be exactly equal across race, gender, and other identity groups is something that ARC clearly doesn't buy into. And, and I'm interested to see how they question that. Now, they're also questioning the environment, the environmental agenda, and that's fine. That's part of their, their remit as well. But I'm more interested in what they've got to say on equity and diversity issues and how they are going to challenge that narrative. That was a professor. Well, I should say the professor of wokeness, but that that's different than being the woke professor. That was a professor, Eric Kaufman from the University of Buckingham, a Canadian in Britain. And that's the one thing that's kind of interesting here is that every country, like oftentimes when I've talked about other countries in the world uh, for what whatever reason or another, and I usually I focus on Canadian politics, you always get like the one or two people in the comments that are like, focus on Canada. But that's the voice I read it in when you say that. So if you say focus on Canada, even if you're like, you know, a kind, like, you know, squeaky voiced, you know, younger lady, uh, I read it as, why, why don't you focus on Canada? But the uh, that's actually how my voice sounds right now anyway. So never mind that. But the thing about that is that we need to be aware of the global trends into which we are fitting as a country and as a people. I mean, the Freedom Convoy was a Canadian story and it was a Canadian movement, but it, it needed to be situated, I think, in a bit more of a global context. It, it was people around the world that were dealing with these same issues. And one of the reasons that I've been so focused on the World Economic Forum, uh, for example, is because that's where we see this rise of the technocracy, this rise of this global elite leadership class that diminishes the power of the individual. And that is where, you know, the individual election in Canada, the individual election in the Netherlands, the individual election in Australia, 
doesn't necessarily matter as much as what this global technocrat technocratic class is doing. And, and, and it's amazing when you see the commonalities of how indigenous issues in Australia and Canada are working, how lockdowns in Australia and the UK and Canada were all manifesting. And that's why I think it is important to be a bit more worldly about these things. Now, obviously, we it's not our job to change things in those individual countries. But I think when it talks about community, when we talk about communicating and discussing these issues, it needs to be done globally, because I, I think you can actually have a global groundswell of support for freedom and against wokeness. And that will actually be able to, I think, better enable mobilization in individual countries. So that's why I thought the forum was quite good. I still promised a column on it that I, I'm working on. Being sick kind of uh, threw me back a, a few days on my schedule, but I'll uh, try to get that done actually after the show today. Uh, we're gonna do a bit of a shorter show today because that is all my voice can withstand. I hope we'll be a bit better tomorrow. And I apologize that you had to listen to uh, this version of my voice, but I think we'll be better uh, tomorrow. So we'll see you in uh, 23 and a half hours with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.